Welcome to the Geneva Peace Week podcast series, a project of the Geneva Peacebuilding Platform. Geneva Peace Week is a leading annual forum in the international peacebuilding calendar. It's a week of events, workshops, videos, and podcasts just like this one, hosted by different organizations and actors around the world. Founded on the core belief that each person, actor, and institution has a role to play in building peace and resolving conflict. You're listening to a podcast produced for Geneva Peace Week 2020, held from the 2nd to the 6th of November with both live events and pre-recorded contributions. For more content like this, join the conversation at genevapeaceweek.ch. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this series about careers and peacebuilding. My name is Annika Erickson-Pearson, and I work for the Geneva Peacebuilding Platform, which is one of the facilitating institutions behind the Geneva Peace Week. About a year ago, a classmate of mine came to the team and said, hey, if we're having a Peace Week where we're learning all of these tools for peacebuilding, where are the tools for students to learn how to apply them professionally? Moreover, how can people learn how to build careers in peacebuilding? Now, you'll hear a lot more from this classmate of mine, Madmita, in the next episodes, but we thought that we would kick off this series about careers in peacebuilding by just telling some stories. Uh, in this episode, I interviewed three women who followed very, very different paths in life. Um, you'll hear all about how they got where they are, how they thought about building their career, and what kinds of advice they would give people around peace building. So I hope that you pull up a chair, get, get out your notebook, and, and get ready to, to hear some really interesting stories. Our first interviewee is a woman, Archana Tomar, who I met through the Co Forum. Uh, we attended both online this summer, and I'm actually not really going to provide too much of an introduction other than to say that Archana is one of the most inspirational dream weavers I've ever met. Without further ado, enjoy the interview. We are now recording. Okay, okay. cool. All right. Thank you so much for being here. It's really, it's really such a pleasure to talk to you. I'm wondering if you could just introduce yourself to the listeners. Thank you so much for having me here, Anika. Um, I'm Archana. I live in Bombay, but I'm mostly venturing around the Trans-Himalayan belt. And that is where primarily my work is. Um, I run a social enterprise uh, called Sutradhar. And Sutradhar is a Sanskrit word, which means a connector, a facilitator, a storyteller. And we believe that each person in their lives uh, have the capacity to be that, just to be that, and to recognize uh, what they can bring, uh, you know, to everybody else. And every skill, every talent is to be recognized. So we decided that we would never have hierarchy. We'll never be driven by that. We would always have one consistent way to describe ourselves, no matter how many people we work with, interacted with, everybody would be a sutradhar. So that's what I do. Uh, we primarily work on the most essential collective dreams of the communities and how to mobilize that with the abundance within the community. So we believe all the skill, talent, resources that we need for any magic to happen anywhere exist within the communities. And it's just a matter of applying the appreciative gaze to look at the possibilities around us. And 
the moment we shift the gaze, we shift the outcome. And that's what we engage with communities in. So having applied that, we are coming out with different dreams that the communities have. And our entire intention is that we need to work on what the community is dreaming of and not what we can bring to the community, right? We bring in a skill, we, we can bring knowledge, we can bring networks, but the dream ultimately has to belong to the community because that is the only way to sustain a particular dream and a project. So that's what we do. And we engage with beautiful indigenous cultures and communities because that's the foundation of our work. And uh, the idea is how to bring the indigenous wisdom and ancestral knowledge to the heart of uh, our existence back because our ancestors were very knowledgeable. They were deeply rooted in earth. And that is what led to protecting and coexisting. So those are the principles that we really follow. And that is how we pursue everything that we do. That's incredible. I also love the way that you conceptualize pursuing the dreams of communities, right? That's such a, it's such a countercultural concept coming away from capitalism where it's, it's so much focused on, on profit or even from the sort of conventional development industry that's really focusing. I mean, it, it, the terminology that we use is so important. So, so this podcast uh, is about how how you sort of built your life to be the way that it is. Uh, and, and so what I'd love for you to share is just a little bit with the listeners of how, how did you get to where you are now? You're clearly doing this work and, and are advanced and it, it, from where I sit, it seems like quite a lot has gotten into it. So can you tell us a little bit more about your story? Sure. So, um, Frankly speaking, my uh, life itself has been a roller coaster ride of explorations and accidents and discovering as I went along. I had no fixed path. I had no fixed uh, goal of where I was headed. I think the only common thread that has stayed with me in my life has been that I really wanted to be useful to the world and I wanted to apply myself to do something good and all of it good by somebody or the other. So I was not really focused on whether I wanted to work on education or healthcare or climate change or with people or with the transgenders, but I was just clear that whatever I did had to do good and right by others, right? So, and that was my goal since I was 10 years old. And it happened because I came across uh, this transgender person and India is very biased and it has really stereotyped a whole lot of things. Like I think a lot of people and countries around the world have, but we are like exceptionally biased against transgenders. And I think we are biased against anything we, that we don't understand. And there was this incident where this person just wanted one rupee. It is like maybe a few cents out of a dollar. But uh, my father would just not, and be like, no, no, don't talk to her. I like, but she's being so nice. And she's, she just wants like one rupee, you know, and why can't we just give her one rupee? They're like, he's like, no, they're dangerous people. You know, they kidnap children. So there were already so many assumptions about this whole community. And I just could not understand the contradiction that I was seeing right in front of me, when there was this human being who was being so nice and so polite and just requesting for one rupee and in return, giving us blessings. But here was my father who had his own stereotypes and stigmas and assumptions about this community and refused to help them with even one rupee. And I just turned around to him and told him that when I will grow up, I'm going to work with them and I'm going to help them and I'll give them all the money that I earn, you know. And my father's like, you shouldn't even be talking to them. And I'm like, yeah, but not now. But when I grow up, I think I can, you know. So 
I think that became, that was the first time I had come across somebody who was so different from who I was or who I was conditioned to be, you know, we condition our children, right? Girl, boy, this is who you should talk to. This is how you should interact and that. And as I grew, I came across more and I, that one trans person, uh, you know, meet actually made me more aware and conscious of everything happening around me. I started becoming aware of how different children from different caste systems were being treated, how people who were helpers and house help and everything were always looked down upon. They would not be provided food in the same plate and they would be made to sit outside and eat. And these things just did not settle well with me. And I just felt so much of wrong. Like in my country, Hindu and Muslims have always been at loggerheads with each other. In my school, I didn't have any such barrier in my head. So I would eat from anybody's box and they would eat from mine. And when I would come back home, my mom says, so who did you share food with? And I would say the name and my parents would like, oh, you shared your box with the Muslim person. And I'm like, yeah, so it's a child, you know, and it was food and it was vegetarian food. So I ate, you know, they're like, oh, you know, you should avoid. I'm like, why? And uh, they had, didn't have a proper answer for me. But I realized that that conditioning that they have had across their, chi- their childhood and their lives was something which was being passed on to me without even having proper explanation. So I think that is what that was one common thread that has led me through my life. I did not, frankly speaking, education wise, I was always very challenged in a school system because I was always made to believe that only if you excelled in subjects that you can do better. I was good at everything that was interactive, that was outdoor, that was interact, you know, engaging with other people, performing. But when it came to subjects, we were made to sit inside a classroom and I could not follow it. So I was always bad at academics. I barely managed to scratch through, okay? I barely managed to pass. I don't think I ever got more than 50%. The only places where I excelled well were sub- uh, languages. So I loved languages. I loved interaction. So I, I picked them up like that and uh, just moved on. And uh, I think uh, my sports and traveling around a lot because my father was in armed forces exposed me to a diverse range of communities and cultures. And my adaptability to all these started becoming really quick. And I started learning and I started observing the stigmas that exist across, across our cultures, across India, right? And that only gave me more motivation. But frankly speaking, I had no idea how would I get there. I finally came to Mumbai uh, years back and uh, I started from selling clothes at a, at a garment store as a part-time person. I picked up a job as a hostess at a, at a music lounge bar. And everywhere I went, I met the next person who took me closer to my path. That is how it was. My life was. I walked away from my graduation. It's not the most ideal thing to see on a forum, say on a forum where children are uh, wanting to see what choices to make in life. But I'll tell you why I walked away from my graduation. Because uh, I could not see what I was learning serve the purpose of my intention and purpose. I had teachers who were teaching me a subject because it was their duty, not because they loved it or enjoyed it. And because they were not pursuing it with that intention, I could not fall in love with what they were teaching me. I was learning more by reading, by exploring, right? So I said, I'm not going to finish a graduation program because it appeases somebody's sense that I've hired a graduate. I want to be known for my merits and the knowledge and the intention I bring to any organization. And if they can't see it, they don't deserve me, you know, and I'll create my own path. So that became my leading guideline. And unfortunately in India, if I don't have a graduation degree, 
I cannot pursue different courses because everybody, everywhere they will ask me, oh, so what's your last certification? You have to be at least 12th grade pass or something. So it kept stunting my learning. So I picked on to internet the moment that came into being, learned everything online and, and just kept moving forward. I started my first company when I was 25, I think. And it was a communications consultancy and I specialized in healthcare. And my father wanted me to be a doctor, but I could not stand sight of blood. But I specialized in healthcare and I, I became a consultant in healthcare. So short of doing a surgery, I think I, I knew everything in the healthcare space, you know. And because we had to actually stand inside an OT or just across a glass barrier to understand how specific things worked, you know, and watch the whole procedure and then be able to explain it to a layperson in, in simple language. So everything I learned was through experience by being out there. I, I was committed to my learning processes beyond what was being offered to me and was expected of me. And that led me to, to becoming engaged in the impact space. So being clear about what my sole purpose was always connected me and attracted me to the right platforms and people. And that took me to my next step, right? So I moved out of my social impact, uh, my, my communications consultancy uh, around six years back. Uh, and this started happening when there were a series of uh, uh, natural disasters that were happening around us. I'm a search and rescue person. So I started moving around a lot in that particular space, connecting with people. And I realized, you know, my skills, whatever I have acquired in the last 10 years are more applicable here. And this is what I want to do. So that is what I became focused on. And I started, again, traveling and learning how do you engage with community instead of just having these jargons and, and methods and concepts and everything, right? How do you really connect with the community? So I got selected for this program called Warriors Without Weapons in Brazil. And I, it was a 35-day intensive program in community. And that totally shifted my perspective on the way we work with communities. It was about really deeply understanding a community's need, what their dreams are, how to create an atmosphere of affection so that trust can be created. You can't force somebody to trust you. You don't, can't tell somebody, please trust me, and they will trust you. You have to build that bridge, right, over a period of time. And I think those were such essential skills that we were never taught in our lives across our school system or education system. We are not taught how to build trust. We are not taught how to build relationships and friendships, right? And I learned that in the impact space. So moving from corporate world to impact space, I realized that these are world apart, right? In terms of knowledge, in terms of interactiveness, how, what we learn. So one of my dreams then also shifted and became that how do I become a bridge between this world and this world? Because there are amazing people who are stuck probably in corporate world. They are there because it serves a need, but they, they can be happier people also over here, right? So we said, how can we become the bridge between bringing these amazing engagement methodologies from the social impact space into the corporate world so and bring some of the processes from the corporate world into the social impact world so that they can become you know they both are interacting with each other in a in the most effective manner till then we didn't have these these spaces right and if you said that i come from social impact people always thought oh you dress up in these drabby clothes and there is a drudgery and then you're poor or something to that effect like you have to always cry and to seek money and funding. And I'm like, no, we can be happy and we can still do what we want to do and do things in a joyful manner. And this program in Brazil taught me exactly that. So for all the 35 days that we were there in the program, we danced every day. 
we played games every day we interacted with children like there were 80 children on a hill every single day we built a community center and a park in four days flat four days that's it so we had 70 children we have adults from the community and there were 20 of us who were in a part of the program we flattened out a mountain top and we built a whole park from a scratch and everybody helped from a 3 year old child to a 90 year old person so whoever can do whatever so like the kids were happiest in the dirt right so if we were flattening out the ground they will pick up the dirt and they'll go dump it where we were telling them to dump it you know and it became play for them because this was officially play time and they could play in dirt officially and their parents could not yell at them because they are helping out right so it became such a beautiful atmosphere and i like the whole world should interact and work in this particular way and uh, that is uh, that is one second anika beta fridge mein hai lekin bane hue nahi hai banane padenge 10 minutes mein aati hu fir bana deti hu ha 10 minutes so i'm sorry i have to cook <laughs> so my nieces <laughs> so um yeah so um you know i thought that social impact should be like that it should be joyful it should be playful it should be interactive you should learn from the communities you should ask them what do they want and uh, we just got the children to design and color the park the way they wanted it right and it was rainbow colored everywhere it was beautiful it had their hand imprints because they didn't know right it's wet and they were so excited just their park is created so we had hand and new imprints they had we had button prints we had everything and that is what the beauty of this particular space was it became a collective collaborative effort with the community and i said if this can work for a park it can work for no matter what we dream of in our communities right and that is where my whole journey of creating sutradhar came about and i said i'm going to be a sector agnostic a region agnostic and purpose agnostic organization whatever emerges from the community we will work on that and we will do it on the foundations of the indigenous wisdom and ancestral knowledge that already exists in these communities because there is so much of knowledge in abundance we are not even exploring it so we said we will begin from there and how do we marry it to the new technologies from around the world to the new methods that are being brought in so how do we marry the two right there is a lot of amazing stuff that has been discovered in the last few decades so why not put it to use but without degrading the the traditional knowledge ecosystems that we already have and that exists so that is something that we got down to working and uh, it 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 is working out beautifully and uh, that is where we are right now so we are working on three very big projects right now one is we are reviving the indigenous uh, skills across the trans himalayan communities identifying what the traditional indigenous practices were and how can we use those for creating sustainable ecosystems within the communities right now some of these initiatives might require regeneration of forest ecosystems or water bodies or whatever it requires so whatever it needs we will do it under the guidance of our elders of the community so that is a very clear purpose there the second big project we are working on is with the transgenders community so transgenders traditionally in india have only three jobs they are either into begging or they are into sex work or they are into offering blessings and they have temple trust so they don't have proper jobs anywhere because they are not recognized and they don't have the qualifications some of them are very well read but because of the way they dress up people don't want to accept them so we are now engaging with 260 transgender organization across india and mapping what are their dreams what are their aspiration who do they want to be and then we will build sustainable ecosystems around that 
right? It can be anything. It is their dream. We want to give them that importance and respect to nurture their dream and not feed our dreams into them, right? So that is the second thing that we're working on. And the third project we are working on is uh, building learning spaces in vulnerable communities. We came across these communities when we were carrying out relief work for the last six months. And we realized a lot of children are at very high risk of violence and trafficking. And they don't have proper education systems around. And even if there is an education infrastructure, there are no teachers and there are no spaces. So we said we, we were already building a module which was on experience and skill-based learning. And uh, we said, let us apply it and create a physical space which will uh, take care of a cluster of 10 villages around, right? So that all the children from these villages can come to the same space. Now, the way we are doing it is intergenerational learning. So a child from being two-year-old to 18-year-old are all a part of the same ecosystem. Because when you learn together, you also learn empathy. You learn how to nurture the younger one. You learn how to teach. And when you are learning how to teach, you are learning more, right? Because you have to learn first to be able to teach. Uh, we are looking at, uh, you know, how this learning ecosystem can be deeply integrated into the cultural ethnicity of the local community. It is taught in local languages. It applies indigenous practices that the traditional communities have. Your elders become your storytellers and tell you about your heritage, your history, how many generations you have been there. So it builds pride in the entire community about who they are. Because one of the things that we are facing around the world today is that our young are not, they, they are being stripped of the pride of who they are because they don't speak English or a specific language that you expect them to know to be established as an educated human being. But what about all the knowledge this child possesses in terms of survival? They know exactly how to grow food. They can read the star ecosystem. They can do everything. And we being in city, we don't know that, right? We have to go through a certification course to understand constellations, right? And these children know it because they're learning from their elders. So we're saying all knowledge should be recognized as, you know, uh, as, as good knowledge. You cannot box it up and say that only when we see a certificate of grading and that you have passed a certain exam that establishes that you are educated. Education and knowledge are mutually exclusive. So how do we build that system where a child feels that they can address their curiosity? They can ask any question. They will be safe in asking any question and they can pursue whatever they want, right? So it can be as complicated as how do I protect my water uh, systems? How do I regenerate my forest ecosystem? How do I protect, how do I live in coexistence with everything around me? So the, the kind of climate shifts that are happening around the world can be brought under control a little bit, right? Because every community that can take care of itself actually contributes to the larger uh, world. That is what it does. And if every community did that, we wouldn't really have the kind of crisis we have right now. So that is what we are doing. We are brick by brick. We are taking that step in that direction. I had a little bit of cutting off there. Do you, are you... Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. I can okay. hear you. I, I, I don't want to say to everybody listening to this podcast that they need to challenge their education system, but it's really clear to me that in, in trusting yourself and challenging what you were taught, you built everything that you, that you are, are doing. And it's, you were able in challenging that 
to pursue soft skills, right? You were enabled in, in challenging that you were able to think what, what is knowledge? What does trust actually mean? What does it mean to work in a joyful way? I don't think anybody has ever taught me in a school that joy should have a place in what I do, exactly. but it's so essential. And I, I love, I, I feel what, how funny is it to, in a careers podcast, to the recommendation is throw out everything that you know, <laughs> but sort of in doing that, you invited your, you invited yourself to take a journey and, and, build the skills that you actually need. I'm curious to know, and maybe this is my, my last question. I'm curious to know what advice you would have, if any, for, for whether they're graduates, whether they're young people, uh, change makers anywhere in the world, hoping to, to build peace in their communities or help hoping to, to do this kind of work. Do you have any advice for those people? You know, I think that all knowledge and um, education systems are great, provided they per- serve a purpose and intent for the student and not just address their own intent and purpose, right? So I feel that if I had the opportunity that a lot of my friends had around the world, I would be in a different place too. It's just that unfortunate that I did not have that ecosystem, which I could trust to take care of me and my needs. Hence, I walked away from it. So my recommendation is that if what you are doing today, what you're learning today serves your purpose, serves your intention, stick to it. Because it is, it is very important to have a guidance, to have a mentor, to somebody who can to show you a direction and a path. Because I was very lost for a very long time, right? So for me, a lot of things were trial and error. And I learned that. And I think if I had somebody like that guiding me, I would have done all this much before in life instead of doing it right now, right? So I think everything serves a purpose and it needs to, whether it serves my purpose or not, is something that I need to be very mindful of. So always listen to your heart, like be very clear about why you're doing what you're doing. And is it really serving your purpose? Never be afraid to ask questions because your questions are what will help you decide whether this is the space, whether am, am I being heard? Am I being addressed? Am I, is my curiosity being you know, answered? Because at the end of the day, this is what leads to the stepping stones to wherever we want to go. You know, it doesn't matter whether you are in school, you're doing graduation, you are doing masters. I think all of it is brilliant because, you know, Anika, I have PhD students come to me today and they're working with me and they're saying, Archana, we can provide this structure here. Oh, I like, wow, that's brilliant. I didn't even know because I was writing like realms of document. And I, in my head, I know that there is something better out there in the world, but I don't know about it. So can you please do this for me? And they're like, of course, happy to. So everybody adds you know their their values to this every knowledge adds to it it's just that we have boxed all our knowledge in these rules you know that only if you have done this then you can access this which is very sad which we shouldn't do but i think for my young people for anywhere like whatever they're you're doing i think you know do it from your heart apply yourself and see whether it serves you, whether it serves your purpose, whether it serves your community, whatever you're learning and doing, can it be applied back in your community? Because that is your ground zero, right? Addressing big problems around the world is one thing, but if you can't even apply it in your community, you really need to revisit and see that 
what can I do to make it applicable where I am, right? And always look for parallel things. It's great to have technical knowledge, but do I also have knowledge which is humane, which is helping me connect with the people I'm trying to serve, right? It is, I'll give you one incident. It's very funny. I was invited to IIT uh, in Mumbai where they have these social entrepreneurs gathering every year. And IIT is one of the most premium education institutions, okay? And it's funny for me because I'm not even a graduate here and I'm invited over there to participate and be there. And I was just sitting and listening and these amazing people were coming out with such amazing solutions. And I'm just sitting there and there was this person sitting right next to me and I was mumbling to myself, I'm like, how is this even applicable in a village where people don't understand your language? They don't understand the technology. They don't understand what you're doing. Like, what are you doing? So he's, he just came up. He like, you know, the, the institution like these, they first come out with a solution, then they go hunting for the problem. And that is where the problem is. And I'm like, wow, that is like you summed up everything that, you know, I, I think and I believe in because that is what is happening. These children are far removed from the realities. So if I develop a water technology, which helps me assess the pollution level in my rivers and my, in my water bodies, is that technology something which can be language agnostic and which a local person in a village, which has never gone to school, apply it without the intervention of an engineer or an educated person. That is when your technology is truly successful. Because if I need to bring in an engineer also behind the technology, it doesn't serve the purpose. India has, you know, 7.5 lakh villages, which is short of a quarter million, you know, uh, villages. And it's crazy. You can't afford literally to have one engineer in every village go and apply their technology. You'll never reach everywhere. Like it will require us five lifetimes probably. So how is whatever you're doing applicable in the simplest way? out there how does it serve the purpose of the community don't think just because we come out with these complicated charts and structures and technologies it shows how intelligent and educated we are i think it's time for us to go as simple as possible because if you can solve the most complicated problems with the most simple solutions you have actually actually succeeded in you know serving a community and not just your purpose of wanting to find a solution for a problem so there is a difference in that you know and it's very important for us to understand that so i think my advice is just that stick to your purpose and your intent see whether it serves you if it doesn't serve you don't be afraid to ask questions don't be afraid to shift path you know because a lot of time we are afraid of what our parents will say what my education institution my peers Everybody has carved out their path. Don't fall in the pressure of performance and of proving to somebody, you know. And I think we need to get out of that trap because at the end of the day, your happiness lies in your hand and your happiness might just come from serving people. And if you're not going to be able to do that because you, ha- you were doing something to appease somebody else's su- you know, uh, sense of success, then we are just going to be lost. All of us are going to be lost. And I, I, frankly speaking, I'm, I'm amazed by the youth today with the kind of social challenges that they're picking up. I didn't even have, I was probably running around and playing all the time. I had no focus. But today I meet 10-year-olds and 15-year-olds who have so much of beautiful focus on what they really want to address. So simple. Ask what question, what problem are you addressing? 
and suddenly everything around you will shift that is that is the most simple and honest advice that i can probably offer thank you it's so interesting to me because i think we we have this this shift in this understanding that we need to we need to as i think as you said be more humane right this is about understanding that the work that we do is ultimately it's human to human and i think we can be so compassionate and so generous and so flexible with the people around us but then with ourselves we can put so much pressure and yeah. say no i need to fit into this box i have to do it this way this is as you said what my parents are expecting or what my educational institution or what my my classmates or my peers but if we're if 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 we are serving communities and we're committed to serving the needs of others we have to remember to also serve so ourselves yeah. exactly so yes. it's so clear that by following this you've just you have created beauty and you have created meaning and you are really doing doing the work to listen and and serve the people around you and i i personally am so inspired and i and i hope that i hope that all the people listening today are inspired as well if I just they want would... to add one thing uh, anika i think uh, you know when i began in the social impact space when i shared my dream and vision of what i really wanted to do with people i was shut down a lot people just shot my dream and idea and they like oh my god these are like motherhood statement what are you trying to do become mother treza or what do you think you're gandhi and i'm like i'm not trying to be anybody else i'm trying to be me and i'm trying to serve a need and a purpose and this is the path to that right and they're like no but you know you're trying to do too many things i like i'm not everything is connected if i want a child to come to a school and if that child does not have food in his stomach and a roof over his head and feels called out to help his parents in the field rather than going to a school the whole system is going to collapse because i don't understand that this community does not even have a sustainable ecosystem so I, my dream was to look at holistic community models my dream was not just to look at school or healthcare or whatever i said why aren't we looking at communities holistically so always always find your tribe it's very important to be motivated to stay positive i have come across a lot of people who feel that there is nobody who understands them and their passion and they need to do something for the people and the community because they constantly you know jibe that oh how are you going to survive on this how where is the money going to come from who's going to pay you for this you know and you're going to be a burden on rest of us like that might come from your family right so surround yourself with a tribe of people who are as committed and passionate about what you're doing right and who understand the purpose from where you are coming without without being negative about it without without constantly like questioning somebody is one thing but constantly shooting down their dreams and ideas is another right and saying oh this is not workable but you don't even know where i'm coming from and you haven't even completely understood my dream you haven't lived the life i've lived in the community so do you understand my community because most of the time i realized the people who shot my ideas down were bankers they worked in banks okay they were corporate people all my friends very close friends okay so i went to them with in utmost honesty and trust but i was just shot down so find your people find your tribe they might be completely different from the people you have known all your life but don't be afraid to go out there engage with those who share similar dreams 
because they will understand you and there is always a tribe out there so stay away from depression don't believe that you're alone there are so many more people it's just a matter of reaching out taking that first step courageously and you'll find people you know that's very very essential i thought i didn't want to miss out on that and there's and there are also so many different luckily i think we live in a world that has so many different wonderful programs and yes this is one of the beauties of technology right is that maybe the those people aren't maybe those people aren't within walking distance of where you live yeah. but if you have if if you're privileged enough to have a connection to the rest of the world via the internet you can find them yeah it's yeah incredible. and it happened with me at co i've been trying to come to co for the last 4 years and einar is a very very dear friend and since i've met him i've been very inspired to come to co to attend these programs but something or the other always uh, mostly it was the financial constraints that i could not reach there and this year yeah. he first messaged me he's like arch everything is online just go register yourself i'm like what is online he's like the whole co forum is online just go register yourself yes. i'm like yeah <laughs> so i registered and i was so i met such amazing people yeah. such amazing people and what you're saying is so right that technology has enabled that that today i don't have to wait to visit somewhere to meet the right person who i can partner with for my project sitting in india right Exactly. And those are the bridges we are crossing. Yeah. So if any of the listeners want to get in touch with you or learn more about the work that you're doing, where can they find you online? Um so okay, I'm I'm the worst communications consultant and I don't have my website up yet because I always found technical people but I did not find people who understood the purpose of my project. So I have not got a website up yet, but they can reach out to me on my website. we do have some facebook pages which i'll be happy to share link of and uh, they can always follow our work over there i'm i'm Perfect. i'm a very tech shy person so i don't really have that much about myself or the whole project but relief work when we need support i put it out there i do need to become more proactive uh, i'm trying but i'm trying to find the people who enjoy it and can be out there uh, but till then of course my email id is there they can write to me i'll be i'll always reply and uh, they can uh, also our social media pages are there they can follow us there and if they put in a question there or some query i'm happy to again address that always uh, always there so we'll put the links in uh in the notes for this episode and who knows maybe maybe the person who wants to make your website and and kind of communicate <laughs> all this is listening to this episode <laughs> you never know i think more Thank than making so the website much. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so Anika. much for your time. It really no. has been such a pleasure. And say so, so it has been my pleasure because at times these kind of questions triggered a different thought process, right? Because we all are just walking walking the path and suddenly somebody comes and says, "Oh, I want to ask you a few questions," you know? And like, "Okay, I need to really think." And uh, I think these free-flowing conversations are the most amazing. And thank you so much Annika for inviting me. it was such a honor to be able to share little what of what we do and uh, hope to do more together in the future isn't archana completely inspirational now we're going to transition and our second interview is going to provide a pretty different perspective our second interview today comes from annika hilding norberg who leads the Geneva Center for Security Policies work on peace operations and peace building with a specific focus on dialogue, research and policy development and education and training. 
Prior to joining the GCSP, she was the founder and director for 21 years of the International Forum for the Challenges of Peace Operations, a joint platform of 22 countries, including the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. The aim of the CF was strengthening the planning, conduct, and evaluation of UN peace operations. It, was, it originated from when Ms. Norberg served as the president of the London School of Economics International Relations Society, which she talks about in this, in this interview. The forum was founded in 1996 as part of her research studies at the LSE. She is the main editor of more than 80 forum and other reports and policy briefs. She holds a bachelor's of science in international relations from the LSE and a master's in international politics from the Université Libre Bruxelles. In 2008, she was awarded the silver medal of the Swedish Royal Academy of Military Science for her contributions to strengthening UN peacekeeping. I think you all are really going to enjoy this interview. Thank you so much for joining today, Anika. It's really a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to join you. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, of course. Well, I think we can just kind of jump right into it here. And the, the place where we want to start is really, how did you get to where you are? And I know that's, a, I mean, we could go step by step from age one, um, but just in a short summary, sort of where, what are the broad contours that brought you to where you are today? Uh, thank you very much. I think my, um, of course, everything in everybody's life feeds into where we are and what we do and where we end up uh, working. But I think my real engagement on the topic uh, related to uh, international relations, peace building and, and peacekeeping operations in particular, was kind of uh, generated during my university year. So just where you are at the moment, this was really the beginning. And I got engaged uh, more like, um, you know, falling on a banana <laughs> peel or whatever, uh, engaged in the International Relations Society. Uh, of the London School of Economics where I went and uh, and uh, was um, uh, it was a little bit like try to be yourself but dare a bit more um, I felt that I was doing things that I didn't really know what to do and how to do it but you just go there and then you learn by doing um, so I got engaged then and then that just you know, you get engaged and it generates new interest and new engagement. And I really want to explore this issue. I want to do this. And what do I need to do to do that? Well, maybe I should start a club. Maybe I should organize a, a research visit to, to the Middle East or, oh, we have to organize a seminar about Moscow or we have to do all these things. So it was really just generated with colleagues. I'm sorry, at the time it was students. So we were all uh, wonderfully brainstorming on things how to do. And I think that's really how it started. And the active engagement in student life kind of beyond the curriculum um, really uh, led to the first internship at the International Institute for Strategic Study and then kind of that's how I got in contact with peacekeeping and then it kind of evolved from there. Uh, I started doing research uh, and the research um, generated a new um, kind of project, the platform. So I did not end up finish my PhD but I did uh, in, again together with colleagues and partners from around the world that joined this effort called the International Forum for the Challenges of Peace Operations which in the end, uh, when I left three years ago, and came to wonderful GCSP, but when I left, there was 22 countries working on strengthening peacekeeping operations in, and also with the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. But it's all driven from curiosity, from commitment, from collaboration, and seeing who are the stakeholders that you need to engage. So I think, uh, a very, very long answer, sorry about that, for a short question. It's, it's really as follow your passion and uh, be ready to commit, to work hard, but have lots of uh, you know fun doing it. Uh, I think that's really what um, 
I would say has helped uh, me uh, have the most wonderful job, I think, yeah. Uh, today. Yeah. It also sounds like you didn't know the end step when you started. It sounds like you also sort of were listening to what was around you and looking for opportunities and taking advantage of what was, what was presented. Or if there was nothing presented, building something. Exactly. I had no idea. Even the first, when starting the, this um, uh, challenges forum, it was only to host a 10 persons uh, workshop around the topic of my research. And then uh, some countries thought, this is important. Let's, you know, let's have another one. And it just rolled. So I never actually, I never had a plan. I had no idea I was going to work 21 years <laughs> for something with uh, all these countries. But this, this is, I think, this is the point. Thank you, Annika. I think it's really important just to be, try to be open-minded and see when things are happening because that also keeps you kind of flexible, agile. And sometimes people think, but wait, where's the direction? You don't have the five-year plan. A lot of people ask for the five-year plan. And I said, well, if we have a five-year plan, the world is going to go that way and we'll be stuck over there. So just to try to take these things, it's a little bit like the Geneva Peace Building Platform is working, which is really just listening and sounding and it's more kind of, collecting and, and synthesizing all the ideas of the members. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any other skills that would be helpful for people looking to build careers in peace or peace building? Uh, are there sort of, are there skills that you find that you kind of come back to in the work that you do? Yeah, I think, uh, of course, the having a, a theoretical knowledge is, is, is fundamental. Um, so that's kind of almost a given. But I do think that um, uh, looking uh, for commonalities with others, looking for um, uh, being able to collaborate with others, I think is really key. But also, if I can add something, is to get field experience especially if you want to work on peace building, because it doesn't matter where you are, if you're going to work in the field for the rest of your life, if you're going to be uh, in a ministry or, or, a, or a headquarters or an NGO and based in the capital in, uh, in where you're from, all of this, um, getting the field experience, the practical experience of what you've learned in university is absolutely a key fundamental, I think, because then you will have a very different voice uh, speaking uh, with others. Um, and also, I think uh, the reason why I want to stress it in this conversation is that I think if you uh, get that early, that's also a great way to get uh, entry into the world of peace building community. Because if you apply to a, a job in a headquarters in New York or Geneva or in your own capital, there'll be so many others who are applying for the same thing. But if you find yourself in Juba, and uh, there's a flood. Well, people, they need people. So you just get in there and, and, and get going, even volunteer, even if you can manage to, you know, way back uh, 30 years when I started, it's really, um, I did a 10 weeks in unpaid internship. And at that time, it was like unheard of. How could you do that? And I said, well, you know, I spent uh, four years, five years at university and not getting a salary. So, so to do 10 weeks, but getting the experience is really, really important. Uh, so, and if you get that early, because then you might have families and small children and all sorts of things. So get that early under your belt. I think it will really help open up your, also your understanding of the issues uh, in a very good way. Yeah. And I think one of the other keys too about, about gaining field experiences is really learning that what we do in the field, what we do in headquarters, it's all about human lives, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that in headquarters, that's sort of the center of all knowledge and that you're going out and bringing the good news to everybody around the world. I think 
if you spend time in a community, whether it's in your own country or a different one, you learn they have a way of operating and there's so much to learn from this. And so I think it's almost kind of a humbling experience that you don't just go and sit in an office somewhere and come up with the answers for everybody else. No, absolutely. And, and thank you, Annika, for stressing the importance of you don't have to go to South Sudan, even if it's a beautiful place. Uh, you can also work in your neighborhood, even, you know, just along down the street uh, to do something worthwhile working really is really at the, the end or where the action really happens. So I think uh, thank yeah. you for stressing that. Yeah, well, I'm American and I think there's often so many Americans that think that they need to leave the country and go somewhere else in order to engage in peace building work. But I think it's really clear for almost anyone around the world to see that the U.S. is in real need of peace building in our own communities. So it's it's always good to remember that you don't have to have, you don't have to buy an international plane ticket sometimes to to, to build those skills. If I may, oh, sorry, go ahead. Can I just jump in on it because you're stressing a very important point. I think now on the one hand you can see, well, you know, with all this crisis transformational and, and uh, around the world and great power politics playing out kind of against uh, a little bit finding resources for for peace building and, and and building peace at the same time it's absolutely as important as ever and even more so and i think the fact that if you have that okay there's this hurdle now mounting challenges to engage in peace building and, and works are less or jobs are less and so on but i think also it's a time when there's such big transformations and changes and everything that we've known for uh, for decades and decades, it's all changing. It's all uh, upside down. So when things are moving, that's when you can, if you're active, proactive, and, and committed, you can find a place. I'm absolutely sure. And and it will be as important as ever. And as you also mentioned, because of, of the changing nature, it's not uh, uh, the West going, doing peace building in Africa. It's changing. It's at home. It's in Sweden. It's in America. It's everywhere. So I really think this is the time if you both want to do practical effort, but also reshape the way in which we think about this. This is also now with the youth. This is all about you. I keep, I know Annika, you're going to kill me for this, but again, reinforcing the issue of the Security Council Resolution 2250 about the youth peace and security. For the first time, I'm 50, but the youth peace and security, the youth dimension has not been covered. I've been focusing on peace and security issues my whole life. And, and, and really the youth has always been that little thing over here. But now with Greta and everything else about it, it's not, it's not the challenge. Well, it's a challenge too, but, but immensely, you're the mobilizer. This is the future. And, and so I, I really think you're very lucky, very lucky to be interested in this topic now when it will make a real difference if you commit and if you do your, you do your contribution. Which actually, because I know that prior to this conversation, Annika, we talked a little bit about languages. You know what if it's important or not and now everybody speaks english and so on and and that's true but i also really think that if, if i was young um uh, or rather i i've been trying to encourage my children i should say <laughs> uh, uh okay they they will do what they want but uh, but i think something which is interesting is that today the future as we talked about is changing so now if you're young i would if i were you i would really look into try to learn chinese or to learn um learn um, uh, arabic uh, the the biggest donors now uh, for for bilateral kind of support donor things is coming from the arab countries from the from the uh from the gulf states and so on and so forth so i think the fact that of course english is 
obviously they come as a nominator and French is good if you want to work in, in, in the UN, it's good anyway, it's beautiful by the way. Uh, and so there are, and, and, and German and all that, it's all great. But there's also this new evolving uh, world where, where Brazilians speak Portuguese. And I think increasingly, uh, if you want to engage, it will be more at the, the regional, local and global level, but there will be more languages around. And even if you can get by on English, I think it's a very different things. If you go into a room and you start engaging with the main stakeholders in Chinese or in Arabic or in whatever language it is. And of course, in particular, local languages is even more, even better. So Absolutely. Absolutely. And making sure that those local languages continue to be spoken. It's, I mean, obviously convenient to be able to communicate with, with other people from other cultures, but the, the preserving, right, these languages is, is so key. Mm. Um, I'm wondering, and now in just our last few minutes, mm. if you have any other advice for graduates or young professionals who want to pursue a career in the field, whether it's uh, navigating the recruitment system or just how to conceptualize what it means to build a career in peace building. Do you have any advice? Um, I think... I think, as, as, uh, as I said, the, the market is, uh, as I'm sure you all know, is pretty uh, dense. But I really, really think, I, my advice is just stay focused, stay creative. Don't wait for things to happen because they won't. They normally don't. Uh, just, you have to just go out there. And if you see there's option A, B, C, and then you're thinking, okay, so everybody's shooting for that. What's the number D that you did think about? What's the organization that doesn't exist yet? What is the partnership that doesn't exist yet? And, and, and I, I, I keep coming back, the practical experience. And then you think it's like, I can imagine, I felt that a long time ago, and I think it's the same, catch 22. You can only apply if you have five years experience. And then of course, you don't get five experience before you get the job. <laughs> So all I'm thinking is now, the good news now is also that you can write articles, you can post blogs, you can uh, also just, you know, save the money or whatever, and then travel to a place, whether it's, you know, down the street or, <laughs> or somewhere else, but just go in there and, and, and get engaged. I think this is the, 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 the thing. And also, I think if you, if you follow uh, uh, organizations that you find are really, I really would like to, to work for that. For instance, the best, if I can just finish, my best... Um, absolutely best colleague um, so far was my deputy director in the, my previous job as I was director of the challenges world and she actually applied three times <laughs> uh, for three different jobs uh, and she got the last one which was the deputy director and uh, uh, and it, because the first times I felt that she wasn't you know she, she didn't uh, I told her I think after the second job uh, was that that's all very great but you don't have any field experience so she went to Kyrgyzstan as a political advisor for two years she came back to apply for this job and I said what was your what's your ambition and then she said well I want to be the first female secretary general of the UN and I thought absolutely this is great ambitious young lady she was really young and but she was absolutely marvelous. So have your, have your goals, your ambitions, and just think, uh, and don't give up. As I said, third time lucky, she was the best person I could recruit ever. So. Yeah, well, and at this point, I mean, I think the way that the world is going right now means that we can't give up. That's, That's I mean, the there's point. sort of, there's no other option. We just have to keep pushing, pushing ahead and yeah. doing everything that we can. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I really wish you all all of luck and and uh, and uh, just uh, keep at it, keep focused, and and stay committed. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it.
Thank you very much, Annika. I really appreciate being invited. Another fantastic interview. And as if it wasn't enough to have two very different stories, we're going to add a third to the mix. Our last interview today is with Sabine Meitzel. Sabine Meitzel is an independent trade development consultant with more than 30 years of hands-on practical professional experience in export and trade promotion for small businesses in developing countries and capacity building for international trade and business. From 1985 to 2012, she was a staff member for the International Trade Center in Geneva, Switzerland. Her progressively senior positions at the ITC equipped her with solid practical project management experience for international business development and aid for trade in over 40 countries across Asia and the Pacific, Africa, and the Middle East. Since 2012, she's worked independently through her consultancy, Horizon 2030, on aid for trade with a focus on private sector development in trade in fragile and conflict-affected environments, women's economic empowerment, and youth in trade. She's a member of the board of directors of the Angie Brooks International Center for Women's Empowerment, Leadership Development, International Peace and Security in Monrovia, Liberia. And a lot of what Sabina talks about in this interview is how the work that she does now is peacebuilding work, which is really important for all of us to keep in mind as we're pursuing careers in peacebuilding, is that it can look so many different ways. So she gets into a bit of what it means to be a consultant and, and working in consultancies, but also how we can all contribute to peace from a myriad different angles. I hope you enjoy this interview. Hello, and thank you so much for being here. I'm pleased to be here. Good hello. <laughs> so, so as you know, this is really a conversation where we are trying to, there are all of these young people who are attending live sessions at Geneva Peace Week or who are downloading all of the podcasts and the videos and learning about peace building projects and learning about all the work that's going on around the world and maybe thinking to themselves, hmm, how do, how do I do this? So we're coming to you and hoping that you would share a little bit more about your story. And I know it's a big question to ask, how did you get to where you are now? Could take nine hours to answer it, but wondering if you could share with us in a few minutes, just more about your story and, and how more of what, how, how more of your story and how you got to where you are now. Thanks, Anika. It's a lovely question. It really made me think. And my first reaction was, but I have not been in a peace building career. I have always been, since I, I started my, my studies, interested in somehow too many things. So I started my studies with three different subjects. One, what we called in, in Germany at the University of Göttingen, social sciences, which includes uh, politics, sociology, a bit of international history, a bit of international law. Same time, I studied a just completely different uh, way of studying social pedagogy, where you work with different groups in society, not necessarily becoming a teacher, but becoming somewhere in the area of social work and doing work with communities. And the third line of studies, again, very different, was French philology. philology. So everybody said, with that, you will not be able to make any career. And I said, mm, at that time, we could still say, we'll see how far we get. And then we build a career on that. I spent 
five years in doing a master's in both subjects, meaning both subjects in French and in social sciences. And in social pedagogy, I got a, um, a bachelor. And with that, I qualified for becoming in the German system, a college teacher. So that was the state exam, as they called it, for the college teacher. But there were no jobs for college teachers. So I went to France, got um, invited and a job with the French Ministry of Education as a lecturer in the training of French college teachers for German language. As this was not a full-time job, I found myself doing all kinds of adult education. I've been training engineers in social sciences. I've been training nurses in um, psychology, sociology. And I really enjoyed that, working with adults, working with professionals in very, very different fields. So I learned as much from them as I hope have given them. After four or five years in, in Paris, uh, I got out of the blue an offer to um, pursue my career as a college teacher in Germany. They found me a place and um, I said, okay, I have always made the experience that it's good to finish whatever kind of study or training or even internship you started. Finish it as soon as you like to. If you don't like it very much, finish it sooner rather than later, but get some kind of a final certificate, final degree, final appreciation so that you can show that you have done something in that area. So I packed my suitcase in Paris and went back to Germany. Uh, did this one and a half years teacher's training which was really tough because I had worked and uh, had gone out of this being an apprentice mode. But it taught me, and that might be interesting for everybody, it taught me to quickly change the side of the, the professor and the learner. And that is what I've done throughout my career. I always made sure that I stayed very much on the pupils, students side from time to time, just to remember what it feels like of being taught and being told. I passed my exam and uh, then there was no job for, for teachers. So I went back in Germany, what I had enjoyed in France and did lecturing at university in sociology, in uh, international law and French language for international law. Um, I worked with uh, adult universities again did evening courses, did evening classes. And again, that taught me a lot, had nothing really to do with peace building, but from my experience in France and then in, in Germany, uh, I felt that I would really be interested in international career. So I was, um, put my applications with a German institution, which um, offered fellowships for young professionals to work with international organizations. And I was at that time quite old already because I had done so many different things, but they accepted me and um, I got invited to do a one and a half year contract 
paid by the German government with UNITAR, the UN Institute of Training and Research here in Geneva. And first of all, I said, mm, I don't know Switzerland and mm, yeah, but then International, International Training Center and training is my bread and butter. So I said yes, and then came to Geneva and tremendously enjoyed working in this, at that time, very small UNITAR office. There was the chief of the UNITAR office, Monsieur Boisard, who was a lecturer at the Graduate Institute at that time as well and um, a secretary and myself. And then there were fellows, uh, so that meant I really had to do absolutely everything from secretarial work to preparing conferences in international law, recruitment um, phase for our fellows, etc. So I really learned the international business from scratch and with a perfect professor and teacher at UNITAR. Then I, because my contract after one year came to an end, uh, I had, as UNITAR, represented the training officers in a UN forum. And in that UN forum, uh, I got the offer from the International Trade Center, from the training officer from the International Trade Center, saying we are looking for somebody in our training services. And I didn't want to leave UNITAR. That was really my dream world. But then my boss said, look, we can't pay for your, for your post. Um, International Trade Center is a good organization. Try. And I said, oh, trade. Well, I'm interested in communication and sociology and in politics, but trade. Well, I, I... And he said, well, think it over. I thought it over. I went. I got the post. And then after having said that probably I would come back home to Germany after one year in Switzerland, I stayed with the International Trade Center for almost 30 years, which was a breakthrough because I had enjoyed not hopping jobs, but doing as many different things as possible, always trying out something new. And I had established a pattern that every three, four years, I definitely had to get into something new, start a new project, start a new job, start a new activity. And in the International Trade Center, they provided me that opportunity because I was able to work as a training officer first and then later becoming um, a chief of business advisory services. I worked on projects and that meant every time a new set of colleagues, a new set of cultural uh, environment, a new set of training and um, business opportunities. So that suited my interests very, very much. Now you may be asking how I got to peace building. In this International Trade Center, where I, by the way, tried as well to um, brush up my background in marketing and international economics. So I did a two-year distance learning uh, course in international marketing at the Export Academy in Germany, weekends and distance learning. And then in the, uh, after about 10, 15 years at the International Trade Center, I did um, an online uh, MBA in international management consulting. 
So I have MBA in International Management Consulting, and that helped me then in ITC to get the post of uh, chief for our small business advisory services. But that again was not exactly related to peace building, I thought at that time, and I had never thought about peace building at that time. I love to work with people, and I had learned in my time with the UN, with the International Trade Center, how important it is to work with people in the field, not from our beautiful offices in, uh, in Geneva, but really to work from their offices under their circumstances. And that has taught me a lot. So in the ITC, I became responsible for the connection between trade and what we called at that time, the Millennium Development Goals. The, today, the SDGs, at that time, that was a novelty. And everybody said trade and Millennium Development Goals is good. It's all about poverty and health and all of that and gender and women. And, but, you know, we are trade, meaning marketing and trade. So, Meitzel, you know something about gender and you are a sociologist and uh, you're anyway not one of us hardcore business people. So you'll look after that. And I said, yeah, that's interesting. And it was not an interesting job in the International Trade Center. But part of the job was that they sent me as a representative of international trade to a conference which was organized in, in 2009 in Liberia. And they asked me to prepare that conference with my colleagues uh, in Liberia. And when they approached me that, I said, my God, this country has just finished civil war. They don't have anything to eat. They have plenty of um, fighting going on. They don't have electricity. They don't have roads. What on earth do you want me to do from the trade side and small business side in a colloquium on women's empowerment for peace and security? What on earth should I do with my background? And they said, no, oh, we have committed. It's an important colloquium and um, Liberia is on its way out of conflict. So we have to try everything and we give everything we have, go. I went. And that I think was my career in peace building and getting interested in peace building. Because ever after that, I understood what my colleagues whom I met at that time in Liberia were up to and up against. I have spent very, very intense working sessions in Liberia with them, trying to build up from scratch some kind of trade. Liberia is a very rich country in terms of um, export potential uh, and a very dangerous country as well in terms of the rich soil and um, the multinationals having a great interest in the Liberian uh, economy. So it was from all aspects an interesting experience and for me probably the most important experience in my career. I then met, after having started to work on that colloquium with the Liberians, um, I went to a Geneva peace building event, which at that time was uh, in its beginnings, and uh, Achim Wenman 
approached me and said, if you are working in trade and are asking questions about what has peace building and trade to do with each other, why don't we put our heads together and have a small information session in ITC about conflict sensitive trade? And that was shortly before, that was two years before I left the ITC. So that was the beginning of my peace building career. Ever since I left the ITC, I'm working on my own small consultancy firm, which is called Horizon 2030. And I have now the luxury of being able to choose what kind of projects I support, what kind of projects I work on. So I have spent a lot of time working with my colleagues in Liberia with the Andy Brooks Center in setting up all kinds of trainings in trying to get the institution built and in linking them to whatever is going on in the UN system, in the international system, and at the Graduate Institute in the area of peace building and of women and youth and their role for peace building. What a story. It really sounds like you've sort of covered such a wide range of of topics and also types of roles, even though you had a 30 year career within one institution, you managed to, to change so much and to do such a diversity of, of projects. And I find that such a fascinating and important reminder that as, as young people, I, me being a young person, we, our, our careers will change so much. You're not applying for one job that you will do <laughs> until your retirement age, right? you there, there's so much diversity in in what happens within our own careers i'm wondering um i have a, i have a few questions i'm wondering if over time as, as throughout your career if you've noticed big changes in in the sort of international geneva that do you see things that are that maybe were true when you started in international geneva that are not true today or or vice versa especially thinking about young people who may be entering into international geneva and trying to trying to find their first one-year contract somewhere one thing which has stayed the same is the importance of internships and trying to get an inside feeling about work and work environments before you apply for a job. As many as possible and as diversified as possible in my case, that has not changed. And um, I know that the, the ITC is working a lot with, uh, with interns. Depending on with whom you work, it's maybe more or less interesting jobs, but it gives you an insight in the organization. So that has not changed. What has changed is the pressure from the international system, from donors, from development cooperation frameworks to report, to monitor, to evaluate, to structure everything, to plan a project three years in advance about when that workshops three years um, in, in future three years will take place with how many participants and how many coffee breaks you need because they need that for a budget. So that was at the time when I started with uh, UNITAR and with ITC, 
we had more flexibility as, as long as we were working on, um, on donor projects. Huh? Within the organizations, you, you still have that. Um, we had smaller projects as well, meaning that I have the feeling if I look at what my colleagues are doing today and what I did in, uh, in the last years, um, you have, when you enter an international organization, less the opportunity to get the full overview of a project activity. You are mostly recruited for a specific job under a given project, under a given division in a given organization. And that was particularly when my, with my recruitment in UNITAR, that was one of my most important learning grounds. Oh? So I think that has changed in the last year. And then as well, the pace and the focus of studies, what I saw and learned and observed with the interns with whom I worked in ITC, uh, they seemed to be much more focused on a particular area, on a particular career path as well, which I sometimes found a bit limiting because it gave me the impression that they were not open to opportunities which were showing up left, right and middle in a neighboring division over a coffee break in, in the ITC cafeteria where another colleague said, oh, I, I've heard you're working with Sabina on this and that. We need somebody to do. And then there was a tendency to say, mm, yeah, it's not exactly what, you know, I'm, I have set out to do. So I can't say that has changed, no? but I observed that as well from the pressures from studies and from finishing studies and from timelines, that may be one result, something which has changed because of the, um, the world of uh, international uh, studies and international development has changed as well. Yeah, I think there's so much, I mean, there's an enormous amount of pressure just thinking even about the number of internships or the number of posts that are available and how incredibly competitive it is. And, mm -hmm. and also important to mention that for a lot of internships, especially in the UN or UN institutions that are unpaid, there are more and more institutions that are beginning to pay their interns. But there are just scores of unpaid internships that people can't afford to have. And I mean, this is a whole other podcast episode about the challenges of getting not just geographic diversity, but also socioeconomic diversity, right? Where it's not just the elites from everywhere around the world where we can say, oh, look how diverse we are. But that's a rant I can go on on another day or for another episode. But uh, thinking maybe outside the UN system, I would be curious to hear about your experiences with consulting. Have you found, you mentioned you have more flexibility there. I'm wondering if there's any any advice or any insight that you would have to share with listeners about working on the consulting side? When I was still at uh, ITC, I did my MBA in management consulting because I thought, and it's true today, like, uh, like it was then, that uh, jobs in international organizations are never 
secure. So I planned then to open my own consultancy firm. And when I was facing the choice of leaving ITC, opening up my own consultancy office or working with ITC, I said, it's interesting in ITC that there is some continuity with working relationships with projects, which I would not have with a consultancy firm. So what I've realized with consultancy work is it is much more punctual. You have responsibility for those smaller parts I referred to. You have, when you are driving your own consultancy firm, of course you are responsible for a project, but that project is financed by somebody and that somebody sets in, in a broader context, sets very, very strict conditions. So it's a different kind of working. It can be perhaps more exciting or more challenging because you really need to prove and show results to get your next project, your next job. Although that in the UN, in the International Trade Center at least, where we were not financed um, by the UN pot, but we were financed by donors and by projects, that was a bit similar. Consultancy has gotten from the little bit I see now when I'm working with several consulting firms in the area of international trade, they have uh, developed a structure like multinationals. There's almost no consultancy firm working as an individual consulting firm. They have incredible networks. And whenever a big development fund comes up, you will find it is administered by so-and-so consulting firm and subcontracted by that and that consulting firm and that and that consulting firm. So it is not easy to get into this jungle of consultancy assignments. I would always recommend to try out for anybody who's interested in, uh, in a career in peace building, to try out consultancy work. Consultancy work by definition is done by the international, for the international organizations as well. So try it out. There are certainly uh, persons for whom that is a much better fit than in a career with a post in an international organization in a, in a regular post. But it is really, it has grown very, very competitive. Okay, that's really good to know. Um, thinking about more broadly advice, you mentioned it folks interested in, in building a career in peace building. Keeping in mind the ways that the system functions, obviously, what advice would you have for graduates or young professionals pursuing a career in peace building? Finish whatever you start as an activity. Finish it with a degree, with an exam, with a certificate, but get some kind of closing to whatever activity, a consultancy assignment, an internship. Finish that off properly. 
so that you can build on any kind of professional experience you may have. Don't discount any experiences. Uh, I didn't put in my experiences with babysitting and working in a bar, which I did right after my studies, but even that taught me something. And you never know what kind of job offers may come your way. Uh, I have found that my different uh, career zigzag was interesting for different people, for different jobs at very different times. So make sure that you get some kind of a certificate for whatever you have done. From my own, looking back at my own way how I got where I am now. I would say take up new challenges as often and as as much as you can. Overcome this feeling about that's not my field at all and that's I, I don't know anything about it. Okay there's always a way to learn something about it. There are always colleagues so look at these sidelines of your career path. Don't have a too clear-cut path about steps to be followed. Keep an open eye and ear for whatever you hear, listen, see, left, right and middle in the coffee shop, on the street, sometimes in the journal. Don't, don't get to yourself in, in what you would like to do with what you have learned and what you have achieved. Take initiatives for that. Stay curious. And finally, what has served me best is probably that I've always managed to do or to get back to what passionates me most. I love working with people. I love building bridges. When, when I see that uh, I can help and perhaps kind of translate, not only French language, but translate different cultures, different problems, different sides of a project. So that's what keeps me going. And that's what keeps me working with Geneva Peace Building Platform and the Geneva Peace Week, because the Geneva Peace Week really offers a tremendous opportunity, one of the best ones I've, I've seen in my career, for having that exchange and for having an, an open eye and ear and heart perhaps as well for areas which may be not exactly on your career path but of interest to you that's beautiful it's not very often that we hear good career advice is is to do what brings you joy you know it's 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 to kind of go we always hear sort of follow follow your passion and and that's really important but there's also this aspect of of really finding finding what it is that you enjoy and trying to do more of that and it seems very simple and it is also an indicator of privilege but it is something that i think i my my joy personally has never led me astray so is there anything else you want to add you are right. It's a question of privilege. I'm very aware of that. It is a question of courage as well. Because you're quite often faced in mm, that would be more secure, that would pay better. Um, I'm not at all sure that I will succeed in this and that. So 
yes, you have to strike a balance, but there are always elements which you enjoy more than others in any kind of job, at any kind of part of your career. And of course, you have to live with those you don't passionately enjoy in any kind of circumstances. But I think you can always find huh, that or identify and find out over the years the kind of areas or, or niches which uh, you really enjoy. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. We really appreciate it. <laughs> About the wisdom, I don't know. <laughs> At the time, I'm very happy to, uh, to be talking with you and to be talking with uh, Geneva Peace Week. Yes, Thanks thank you. And that's it. It's only an hour and a half worth of peace building conversations. No, but really, we our goal is to show a few different angles. Of course, everybody's career path is going to take a very different direction. And everybody is coming from a very different place. The mo most significantly, and, and what I, I, I think about quite a lot is actually how we all see the world in different ways too. And you can see the ways in which sort of the, the mentality and the understanding of the world, how that governed, how these three different women built their careers around peace building. Um, so I hope that it gave you some food for thought. I hope that you were able to connect somehow with, with one of the stories. Um, and, and I just want to take a minute now to tell you a little bit more about this careers and peace building series. So we have a few different episodes lined up for you. The next episode is a conversation about diversity and inclusion, which is an essential conversation in Geneva. As we know, the structures of the world, wherever you are, are not built equitably. So instead of skirting around that issue, we go straight into it. Uh, and, and we have an entire episode on that with a couple of great interviews. We also thought it would be helpful to provide some concrete information on recruitment practices. So the third episode that you'll find in this series uh, revolves around recruitment practices. Next, there is actually a visual episode, uh, which is a kind of crash course in building a CV. So you'll make want to make sure that you actually watch that version because there are slides, slides engaged with that one. And then finally, the last episode is an interview with uh, Claudia Seymour about her her class on ethics, power, and privilege, um, where we get into it a little bit more. It's a little bit less sort of concrete advice and, and a little bit more food for thought. But again, this, this whole series was built out of uh, a student at the Graduate Institute, a classmate of mine, um, who made a call for, for more content about careers and peace building. And I hope if some of you are still listening at this point, an hour and a half in, you feel empowered to ask questions, to request more information where you need it. Um, our inboxes are certainly open at the Geneva Peacebuilding platform. Um, but if there's anything else, it's just start emailing people, reach out, ask for coffee, ask for coffee dates, um, ask questions, get curious, make contact with people. That's the way that we learn and we grow. So thank you so much for listening today and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for joining us for this installment of the Geneva Peace Week podcast series. Don't forget to subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave a review about something you learned. You can also visit our website to continue the conversation with the makers of this episode.
join us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Geneva Peace Week. Above all, thank you for being here, and we hope you'll join us again for another episode.